0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my creatures of the night, to your next Dracula episode in Dracula Part 3. Mates, we've met the man, the monster, but don't know much about his agenda or intentions towards Jonathan now we're going to start finding out mates rest assured i'll be adding all the preceding links to each dracula part in the episode notes so that it's easier for you lovelies to navigate through and right now mates i'm enjoying a tea called gunpowder tea which are tiny rolled up balls of strong and earthy tea packets one of my favorites think russian caravan a little bitter at times but a touch of milk and it's one of the nicest teas around i hope you can get a chance to try it sometime. Now, my little creepy-crawlies, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and don't let anything bite. The estate is called Carfax, no doubt a corruption of the old Quatre Face, as the house is four-sided, agreeing with the cardinal points of the compass. It contains an all-some twenty acres, quite surrounded by the solid stone wall above mentioned, there are many trees on it which make it in places gloomy, and there is a deep, dark-looking pond or a small lake, evidently fed by some springs, as the water is clear and flows away in a fair-sized stream. The house is very large and of all periods, back. I should say, to medieval times. For one part is of stone immensely thick, with only a few windows high up and heavily barred with iron. It looks like part of a keep and is close to an old chapel or church. I could not enter it, as I had not the key of the door leading to it from the house, but I have taken with my Kodak views of it from various points. The house has been added to, but in a very straggling way, and I can only guess at the amount of ground it covers, which must be very great. There are but few houses close at hand, one being a very large house, only recently added to and formed into a private lunatic asylum, It is not, however, visible from the grounds.
1: When I had finished, he said, I am glad that it is old and big. I myself am of an old family, and to live in a new house would kill me. A house cannot be made habitable in a day, and after all, how few days go to make up a century. I rejoice also that there is a chapel of old times, We Transylvanian nobles love not to think that our bones may lie amongst the common dead. I see not gaiety nor mirth, not the bright voluptuousness of much sunshine and sparkling waters, which please the young and gay. I am no longer young, and my heart, through weary years of mourning over the dead, is not attuned to mirth. Moreover, The walls of my castle are broken, the shadows are many, and the wind breathes cold through the broken battlements and casements. I love the shade and the shadow, and would be alone with my thoughts when I may. Somehow his
0: words and his look did not seem to accord, or else it was that his cast of face made his smile look malignant and saturnine. Presently with an excuse, he left me, asking me to put all my papers together. He was some little time away, and I began to look at some of the books around me. One was an atlas, which I found opened naturally at England, as if that map had been much used. On looking at it, I found in certain places little ring marks, and on examining these, I noticed that one was near London at the east side, manifestly where his new estate was situated. The other two were Exeter and Whitby on the Yorkshire coast. It was the better part of an hour when the Count returned. Aha! He said,
1: Still at your books? Good. But you must not work always Come, I am informed that your supper is ready.
0: He took my arm and went into the next room, where I found an excellent supper ready on the table. The Count again excused himself, As he dined out on his being away from home, but he sat as on the previous night and chatted whilst I ate. After supper, I smoked, as on the last evening, and the Count stayed with me, chatting and asking questions on every conceivable subject, hour after hour. I felt that it was getting very late indeed, but I did not say anything, for I felt under obligation to meet my host's wishes in every way. I was not sleepy, as the long sleep yesterday had fortified me, but I could not help experiencing that chill which comes over one at the coming of the dawn, which is like in its way the turn of the tide. They say that people who are near death die generally at the change to the dawn or at the turn of the tide. Anyone who has when tired, and tied as it were to his post, experienced this change in the atmosphere can well believe it. All at once we heard the crow of a cock coming up with preternatural shrillness through the clear morning air.
1: Count Dracula, jumping to his feet, said, "'Why, there is the morning again! How remiss I am to let you stay up so long! You must make your conversation regarding my dear new country of England less interesting, so that I may not forget how time flies by us!' And with a curtly bow, he quickly
0: left me. I went into my room and drew the curtains, But there was little to notice. My window opened into the courtyard. All I could see was the warm grey of quickening sky. So I pulled the curtains again, and have written of this day. 8th of May I began to fear as I wrote in this book that I was getting too diffuse. But now I am glad that I went into detail from the first, for there is something so strange about this place, and all in it, that I cannot but feel uneasy. I wish I were safe out of it, or that I had never come. It may be that this strange night existent is telling on me, but with that, that were all. If there were anyone to talk to, I could bear it, but there is no one. I have only the Count to speak with, and he. I fear I am myself the only living soul within the place. Let me be prosaic so far as facts can be. It will help me to bear up, and imagination must not run right with me. If it does, I am lost. Let me say at once how I stand, or seem to. I only slept a few hours when I went to bed, and feeling that I could not sleep anymore, got up. I had hung my shaving glass by the window and was just beginning to shave. Suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard the Count's voice saying to me, "'Good morning.' I started, for it amazed me that I had not seen him, since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting, I had cut myself slightly, but did not notice it at the moment. Having answered the Count's salutation, I turned to the glass again to see how I had been mistaken. This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed but there was no sign of a man in it, except myself. This was startling, and, coming on the top of so many strange things, was beginning to increase that vague feeling of uneasiness, which I always have when the count is near. But at the instant I saw that the cut had bled a little, and the blood was trickling over my chin. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so half-round to look for some sticking plaster. When the count saw my face... His eyes blazed with a sort of demoniac fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe that it was ever there.
1: "'Take care,' he said. "'Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country.'" Then, seizing the shaving glass, he went on. And this is the wretched thing that has done this mischief? It is a foul bauble of man's vanity. Away with it! (laughs) And opening the heavy window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung out the glass,
0: which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Then he withdrew without a word. It is very annoying... For I do not see how I am to shave, unless in my watch case or the bottom of the shaving pot, which is fortunately of metal. When I went into the dining room, breakfast was prepared, but I could not find the Count anywhere, so I breakfasted alone. It is strange that as yet I have not seen the Count eat or drink, he must be a very peculiar man. After breakfast, I did a little exploring in the castle. I went out on the stairs and found a room looking towards the south. The view was magnificent, and from where I stood, there was every opportunity of seeing it. The castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. As far as the eye can reach is a sea of green treetops, with occasionally a deep rift where there is a chasm. Here and there are silver threads where the rivers wind, in deep gorges through the forests. But I am not in heart to describe beauty, for when I had seen the view I explored further, doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all locked and bolted. In no place save from the windows in the castle walls is there an available exit. The castle is a veritable prison, and I am its prisoner. Chapter 3 Jonathan Harker's Journal Continued When I found that I was a prisoner, a sort of wild feeling came over me. I rushed up and down the stairs, trying every door and peering out of every window I could find. But after a little, the conviction of my helplessness overpowered all other feelings. When I look back after a few hours, I think I must have been mad for the time. For I behaved much as a rat does in a trap, When, however, the conviction had come to me that I was helpless, I sat down quietly, as quietly as I have ever done anything in my life, and began to think over what was best to be done. I am thinking still, and as yet have come to no definite conclusion. Of one thing only am I certain, that it is no use making my ideas known to the Count. He knows well that I am imprisoned, and as he has done it himself, and has doubtless his own motivations for it. He would only deceive me if I trusted him fully with the facts. So far as I can see, my only plan will be to keep my knowledge and my fears to myself, and my eyes open. I am, I know, either being deceived, like a baby, by my own fears, or else I am in desperate straits. And if the latter be so, I need and shall need... All my brains to get through. I had hardly come to this conclusion when I heard the great door below shut and knew that the Count had returned. He did not come at once into the library, so I went cautiously to my own room and found him making the bed. This was odd, but only confirmed what I had all along thought that there were no servants in the house. When later I saw him through the chink of the hinges of the door, laying the table in the dining room. I was assured of it. For if he does himself all these menial offices, surely it is proof that there is no one else to do them. This gave me fright. For if there is no one else in the castle, it must have been the Count himself, who was the driver of the coach that brought me here. This is a terrible thought. For if so, what does it mean that he could control the wolves as he did, by only holding up his hand in silence? How was it that all the people at Bistrit and on the coach had some terrible fear for me? What meant the giving of the crucifix, of the garlic, of the wild rose, of the mountain ash? Bless that good, good woman who hung the crucifix around my neck, for it is a comfort and a strength to me whenever I touch it. It is odd that a thing which I have been taught to regard with disfavor, favour, and as idolatrous, should in a time of loneliness and trouble, be of help. Is it that there is something in the essence of the thing itself, or that it is a medium, a tangible help, in conveying memories of sympathy and comfort? Sometime, if it may be, I must examine this matter and try to make up my mind about it. In the meantime, I must find out all I can about Count Dracula, as it may help me to understand. Tonight, he may talk of himself, if I turn the conversation that way. I must be very careful." however not to awoke his suspicion midnight i have had a long talk with the count i asked him a few questions on transylvania history and he warmed up to the subject wonderfully in his speaking of things and people and especially of battles he spoke as if he had been present at them all this he afterwards explained by saying that to a boyar the pride of his house and name is his own pride that their glory is his glory that their fate is his fate. Whenever he spoke of his house, he always said we, and spoke almost in the plural, like a king speaking. I wish I could put down all he said exactly as he said it, for to me it was most fascinating. It seemed to have in it a whole history of the country. He grew excited as he spoke, and he walked about the room pulling his great white moustache. And grasping anything on which he laid his hand on as though he would crush it by main strength. One thing he said, which I shall put down as nearly as I can, for it tells in its way
1: the story of his race. We, Ziklers, have a right to be proud, for in our veins flows the blood of many brave races who fought as the lions fight for lordship. Here, in the whirlpool of European races, the Ugric tribe bore down from Iceland the fighting spirit which Thor and Woden gave them, which their berserkers displayed to such full intent on the seaboard of Europe, ay, and of Asia, and Africa too, till the peoples thought that the werewolves themselves had come. Here too, when they came, they found the Huns, whose warlike fury had swept the earth like a living flame. To the dying peoples held that in their veins ran the blood of those old witches. Who, expelled from Scythia, had mated with the devils in the forest. Fools, fools. What devil or what witch was ever so great as Attila, whose blood is in their veins? He held up his arms. Is it a wonder that we were a conquering race? That we were proud? That when the Magyar, the Lombard, the Avar, the Bulgar, or the Turk poured his thousands on our frontiers, we drove them back? Is it strange that when Arpad and his legion swept through the Hungarian fatherland, he found us here when he reached the frontier? That the Honfalgalus was completed there? And when the Hungarian flood swept eastward, the Zikals were claimed as kindred by the victorious Magyars and to us for centuries was trusted the guarding of the frontier of Turkeyland, Aye, and more than that, endless duty of the frontier guard. As the Turks say, water sleeps and enemy is sleepless. Who more gladly than we throughout the four nations received the bloody sword, or at its warlike I call, flock quicker to the standard of the king. When was redeemed that great shame of my nation, the shame of Kosova? When the flags of the Wallach and the Magyar went down beneath the Crescent? Who was it by one of my own race, who as Voivode crossed the Danube and beat the Turk on his own ground? This was a Dracula indeed. Woe was it that his own unworthy brother, when he had fallen, sold his people to the Turk and brought the shame of slavery on them. Was it not this Dracula, indeed, who inspired that other of his race, who in a later age again and again brought his forces over the great river into Turkeyland, who, when he was beaten black, came again and again and again, though he had to come alone from the bloody field where his troops were being slaughtered, since he knew that he alone could ultimately triumph, They said that he thought only of himself. Bah! What good are peasants without a leader? Where ends the war without a brain and heart to conduct it? Again, when after the Battle of Mohawks, we threw off the Hungarian yoke, we of the Dracula blood were amongst their leaders, for our spirit would not brook that we were not free. Ah, young sir. The Zeckels and the Dracula as their heart blood, their brains, and their swords can boast a record that mushroom growths like the Habsburgs and the Romanovs can never reach. The warlike days are over. Blood is too precious a thing in these days of this honourable peace. And the glories of the great race are as a tale that is told. It was by
0: this time close on morning and we went to bed. Memo, this diary seems horribly like the beginning of the Arabian Nights, for everything has to break off at Cockcrow, or like the ghost of Hamlet's father. 12th of May. Let me begin with the facts. bare, meager facts verified by books and figures, and of which there can be no doubt. I must not confess them with experiences which will have to rest on my own observation, or my memory of them, Last evening, when the Count came from his room, he began by asking me questions on legal matters, and on the doing of certain kinds of business. I had spent the day wearily over books, and simply to keep my mind occupied, went over some of the matters I had been examined in at Lincoln's Inn. There was a certain method in the Count's inquiries, so I shall try to put them down in sequence. The knowledge may somehow, or sometime, be useful to me. First, he asked if a man in England might have two solicitors or more. I told him he might have a dozen if he wished, but that it would not be wise to have more than one solicitor engaged in one transaction, as only one could act at a time, and that to change would be certain to militate against his interest. He seemed thoroughly to understand and went on to ask if there would be any practical difficulty in having one man to attend, say, to banking, and another to look after shipping. In case local help were needed in a place far from the home of the banking solicitor, I asked him to explain more fully, so that I might
1: not by any chance mislead him. So he said, I shall illustrate your friend and mine, Mr. Peter Hawkins, from under the shadow of your beautiful cathedral at Exeter, which is far from London, buys for me through your good self my place at London. Good, Now, here, let me say frankly, lest you should think it strange that I have sought the services of one so far off from London instead of one some resident there, that my motive was that no local interest might be served save my wish only. And as one of London residents might, perhaps, have some purpose of himself or friend to serve, I went thus afield to seek my agent, whose labours should be only to my interest. Now, suppose I who have much of affairs, wish to ship goods, say, to Newcastle, or Durham, or Harwich, or Dover, might it not be that it could with more ease be done by consigning to one in those ports? I answer that certainly it would be most easy, but
0: that we solicitors have a system of agency, one for the other, so that local work could be done locally on instruction from any solicitor so that the client, simply placing himself in the hands of one man, could have his wishes carried out by him without further trouble.
1: But, he said, I could be at liberty to direct myself, is it not so? Of course, I replied, and
0: said, Such is often done by men of business, who do not like the whole of their affairs to be known by any one person. Good, he said and then went on to ask about the means of making consignment and the forms to be gone through, and of all sorts of difficulties which might arise, but by forethought could be guarded against. I explained all these things to him to the best of my ability, and he certainly left me under the impression that he would have made a wonderful solicitor, for there was nothing that he did not think of or foresee. For a man who was never in the country, and who did not evidently do much in the way of business, his knowledge and acumen were wonderful. When he had satisfied himself on these points of which he had spoken, and I had verified all as well as I could
1: by the books available, he suddenly stood up and said, "'Have you written since your first letter to our friends, Mr. Peter Hawkins, or to any other?' It was
0: with some bitterness in my heart that I answered that I had not. As yet, I had not seen any opportunity of sending letters to anybody. "'Then write now,
1: my young friend,' He said, laying a heavy hand on my shoulder, "'Write to our friend and to any other, and say, if it will please you, that you shall stay with me until a month from now.' "'Do you wish me to stay longer?' I asked, for my heart grew cold at the thought. "'I desire it much, nay. I will take no refusal. When your master, employer, what you will, engaged that someone should come on his behalf, it was understood,' That my needs only were to be consulted. I have not stinted. Is it not so? What could I do but bow acceptance?
0: It was Mr. Hawkins' interest, not mine. And I had to think of him, not myself. And besides, while Count Dracula was speaking, there was that in his eyes and in his bearing which made me remember that I was a prisoner and that if I wished it, I could have no choice. The Count saw his victory in my bow and his mastery in the trouble of my face, for he began at once to use them, but in
1: his own smooth, resistless way. I pray you, my good young friend, that you will not discourse of things other than business in your letters. It will doubtless please your friends to know that you are well, and that you look forward to getting home to them. Is it not so? As he spoke, he handed me three sheets of
0: notepaper and three envelopes, They were all of the thinnest foreign post, and looking at them, then at me, and noticing his quiet smile, with the sharp canine teeth lying over the red underlip, I understood as well as if he had spoken that I should be careful what I wrote, for he would be able to read it. So I determined to write only formal notes now, but to write fully to Mr. Hawkins in secret, and also to Mina. For to her I could write in shorthand, which would puzzle the Count, if he did see it. When I had written my two letters, I sat quiet, reading a book whilst the Count wrote several notes, referring as he wrote them to some books on his table. Then he took up my two and placed them with his own, and put by his writing materials, after which, the instant the door had closed behind him, I leaned over and looked at the letters, which were face down on the table. I felt no compunction in doing so, for under the circumstances, I felt that I should protect myself in every way I could. One of the letters was directed to Samuel F. Bellington, number seven, the Crescent Whitby, another to Air Lutoner, Varna, the third was to Coots & Co., London, and the fourth to Heron Klopstock and Bill Ruth, Bankers, Budapest. The second and fourth were unsealed. I was just about to look at them when I saw the door handle move. I sank back into my seat, Having just had time to replace the letters as they had been and to resume my book before the count, holding still another letter in his hand, entered the room. He took up the letters on the table and stamped them carefully, and then turning to me said,
1: I trust you will forgive me, but I have much work to do in private this evening. You will, I hope, find all things as you wish. At At the door he turned, and and after after a a a moment's pause said, said, Let me advise you, my dear young friend, nay, let me warn you with all seriousness, that should you leave these rooms, you will not by any chance go to sleep in any other part of the castle. It is old, and has many memories, and there are bad dreams for those who sleep unwisely. Be warned! Should sleep now or ever overcome you, or be like to do, Then haste to your own chamber, or to these rooms, for your rest will then be safe. But if you be not careful in this respect, then... He finished his speech in a gruesome way, for he motioned with his
0: hands as if he were washing them. I quite understood. My only doubt was as to whether any dream could be more terrible than the unnatural, horrible net of gloom and mystery, which seemed closing around me. And this is where I'll stop for this episode. Well, I hope you're enjoying Dracula so far. Now, Dracula's agenda is clear. He wants Jonathan there and to stay there. But why and for how long, really? And what will become of our unfortunate protagonist, a prisoner in an unknown landscape, full of secrets behind locked doors and empty halls? And should he escape, what then? and in the wilderness where Dracula seems to be able to control the wolves themselves with the simple gesture of his hand. Ah, Jonathan is out of his league, and will only escape through wits and wits alone. He must maintain his composure, withhold his intentions, and communicate in secret, much like the dark rooms in Dracula's mansion. He must keep his thoughts behind lock and key, no matter how friendly he gets with Dracula. What would you do if you were trapped in this mansion? How would you escape? with limited to no resources at your disposal. And once you're out of the mansion, then what? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Big shout out to Star EU 2099 for your comment on my SoundCloud episode for Dracula Part 2. It's always good to hear your thoughts. And folks, I hope you had a great time listening to this tale, and I'll be bringing you Dracula Part 4 next Wednesday, as I'd like to change the flavor of this Friday with a different kind of story, which I can't wait to share. Now the second most favorite part of this podcast for me is my thank yous. Thanking the Patreon supporters that donated this podcast. If you want to help this podcast grow, and help me explore different avenues of content, then swing on by my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt, or click on my SoundCloud support the podcast button for a bit of an easier route. Now first up, the legends that are my Ode 90 titans, Matthew J. Bower, Prince Alexandru of Red Creek. Prince Alexandru, an amazing man who shunned by high society due to his marriage to another prince, Adrian of Mostorn Mountain, their love was born of the environmental sciences, their love of the land, researching ingredients and discovering new creatures every single month together. It was only when Adrian was cornered and stoned to death for the romantic affair that Alexandru delved into the forbidden plants of Tian Creek, where the native plant called Tulazzo grew. He had been researching this plant for some time, trialling it on animals. The plant itself provided immense strength but uncontrollable rage. Simple to understand in meaning but difficult to understand its effect on a human. Grieving over the death of his soulmate and the desire to live his life as it was, he ate the Toluzzo, knowing not what would happen. Perhaps seeking death, mental peace, or whatever else it might bring. What it brought was the creation of Red Creek. Once a town of 200 people, now a scar in the earth's surface, where Tolotso grows endlessly in a dried up lake of perpetual red. A ghost town is what that town became. Two survivors still live to this day to account for the story. They say that Alexandru entered the village covered in blood, and he began tearing people in half with his bare hands. The only words they heard as his rage fueled form pushed past corpse after corpse was the name Adrian. Red Creek still exists to this day. A terrifying omen of a man woefully wronged. Maya, Queen Alina of Tree Hollows Queen Alina was once loved by her townfolk, A personality that would charm the shirt of a sailor and the smile that could repair a cracked mirror. Being around her was magnetic, drawing people in wherever she went. Her presence had an effect on people that left them wanting more. She was loved by her people. After five years of peace, her town was attacked, her army destroyed, and her city folk tortured. Times were at their worst when she resorted to a forbidden nature magic passed down from generations past, the Rune of Tree Hollow. The very Rune that drew people to her became her focal point of hate, malice, and destruction, and the Queen of Tree Hollow was born that day. The city was quiet the day she reclaimed her city back from the Hemla army people were sitting, relaxing, little aware that in their mix of activities today, they would be dying too. Elena walked to the center of the city, accosted by guards, her people pleading to her to run, but instead she paused and thrust her hand into the earth effortlessly. The soil gave way to a broad smile, and it swallowed her hand whole. Unperturbed by this, Elena concentrated hard, past the pain past the fear and all noise stopped for that moment as every guard every invader grappled their chests and kneeled to the ground gasping reaching out to Alina not knowing why but that it was her that actioned their agony the earth rumbled the air sizzled and the very gravel sand and tree roots wrapped and encased around the invaders the dust and destruction settled Alina was gone but in her place stood an enormous tree Surrounded by a circle of drywood trees, all reaching, pointing, pulled to the center, like a morbid circular pinwheel. And to this day, the Queen of Hollowwood remains there, and she is just as respected and loved as she was before. Sulstra, Queen Lona of Moonlight Glade Queen Lorna, the Witch of Moonlight Glade, known for her amazing talent for battle tactics and raw magical power. Lorna is indeed a witch, using her talent in mysticism, scrying, and nature magic to track, locate, and outmaneuver her enemies. None better an example than her battle to save her kingdom from the invading Hemlar army. Two opposing battalions were approaching on her fort, set to flank one side of her army and force a rush through the middle straight to her, with the intention of gutting her army with her death. But she was no fool, and she had magic on her side, none other than nature magic to be exact. With the knowledge from her spies and the Fae of the Woods trading for information, she planted 200 earthplate seeds one week before the battle. What are earthplate seedlings? They are Fae-born plants that are innocuous in their realm but once carried over to the physical plane, bring on disastrous effect to the land. They are also only grown exclusively with direct moonlight. It was when the Hemla army attacked that she used large glass dishes to reflect the moonlight onto those ceilings. Shifting the entire earth in a way that saw vines erupt from beneath to lacerate the landscape. Shredding both the land to mulch and three quarters of the invading Hemla army. You see earthplate seeds lift the earth up, suspend the landscape, then flicker out of existence. Leaving the earth to shudder and fall back to the mainland. This resulted in trapping 4,000 Hemlar soldiers beneath the soil for eternity. Horses, men, heavy plate, and all. That, my friends, is why Lorna is feared. And has coined the name Queen Lorna of the Moonlight Glade. Folks, I hope you all enjoyed your tales. I wanted to throw in a mix of war, betrayal, and death in light of Dracula's story about his own heritage. Hope you love them. And your fantastic support is what keeps this podcast blasting along. Not one episode goes up without thinking of you, lot. So thank you so so much. Now, for my wicked white tea warlords, I own cows. Clear of the purple shrub, the town Clear had been ravaged by demonic deers that had an insatiable appetite for human flesh. No one was left alone at night, and low growls would be heard—not from the dogs at night, but from a small horde of deer deers. As they would call them, that would roam the town at night, and by roam, they would walk right through and occasionally break house doors down and pull out the youngest of the family to consume. Mr. Cowles was new to town and took up the mantle of herbalist of Clea. He witnessed deaths of children on his first week there and decided that research was required to stop this threat. With observation, he discovered that the deers would always take the path through the city that would have the least purple shrubs in their pathway, visibly recoiling and grunting as they neared the shrubs at his house. And that was when he had the idea. For whatever reason, these shrubs repulsed the Deerdeers. He began by feeding the cows in the area the purple shrub berries and placed them within the town. The cows seemed to grow bigger through their consumption and actively push back the Deerdeers in the surrounding areas. Simple as it was, from that day onwards, the town gates and walls were painted with this berry, and the purple town of Clear was born without another soul dying from the deer dears. And Lee Bauer, Lieutenant of Light. They say time can slow down when you stare at a watch. What they do say, though, is that time stops when demons are near. And it's true. Demons of the night have an effect on the space they occupy, creating chaos in the rules of nature, and telltale signs that they are around or on their way. Lieutenant Lee Bauer is the leader of a strike force against those demons at Fort Trent, that sees itself wrought with demon insurgents and demonic doppelgangers, killing humans and possessing their corpses to gather intel and bring it back to their master. Something had to be done, fast and efficiently. Enter the master clockwork maker, Lee Bauer. A man of many talents, with watchmaking both a passion and a life-saving school of thought for his job, his knowledge of clockwork and gadgets lent themselves to perfect timing and chronological detection and as a result, his clocks were crafted to spot the very aspect that identifies a demon's presence. Time slippage. And it worked. Most of the time. It wasn't until he borrowed Fane Glass from Queen Lorna that life changed for the people under his guard. Fane Glass is a linchpin for light, and should any distortion of space or time take place, the beam that it casts wavers. In knowing and using this, Lee was able to create a lens for his city that caught and killed demons in their tracks, faint light being able to burn demons directly and set them alight where they stand. From here onwards, the master clockwork maker became the lieutenant of light, revered eternally for this discovery. Mates, I hope you both enjoyed your tales, something very different from the usual. Instead of turning you into hunters, I wanted to make you defenders and stalwart of cities you guarded. Hope you enjoyed the stories mates and thank you so much for supporting me as always. And of course, my brilliant Earl Grain Forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Cresanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. All of you are amazing. For all of you brilliant people who have reached out to me via Patreon message and email, rest assured this week I'll be getting back to you for sure. So keep an eye out for those emails. (laughs) And thank all of you so much again for sending your support through to the podcast. Every bit counts and I'm so grateful. Have a kick-ass Wednesday day or night and I'll catch you Friday for something different. As always, my favourite people. Till next we meet.